Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Dean Delfos. I'll tell you more about me in just a minute. I was really, still to this day, I really don't know who did it. Um, all I know is that I was shocked. One day I walked into our church foyer one Sunday morning, uh, and there was a banner that somebody put in our church banner. Now, let me just stop for just a minute. Imagine you walked into church, a church that you come to week after week, and somebody put a random banner front and center so that everybody who walks in would see it. What would you think? Thankfully, this banner was a very nice banner, very good banner, and it was a reminder to be kind. In huge letters, a reminder to be kind. Of all things, to put in front of a church foyer for people coming in, a reminder to be kind. I didn't know at first what to think. Well, I'm ashamed to tell you what I thought. I thought, who did this? And who do they think they are? And of all things to say, such a trite, weak word as be kind. The whole notion feels impotent. It feels weak. But that reminder was huge for that moment. It was the middle of the COVID years. And we couldn't agree, even as believers, as what COVID is and what we should do about it and what kind of things we should wear on our face or not. And anybody who disagreed with us was the devil himself. Politics was nuts. I know you don't remember this. It was like yesterday. <laughs> and this reminder to be kind to believers walking into church was a well-timed word. I bring that to you because our passage today in Titus chapter 3 begins with that exact notion. Titus chapter 3, if you have it or if you have a Bible in front of you, would you try to locate Titus, the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus chapter 3. While you're doing that, let me introduce myself. My name is Dean Delfos. For 10 years, I've had the privilege of being the pastor for preaching at Country Bible Church, one of our partner churches, um, just outside Bennett, south of Lincoln. And this summer, my companion in ministry, Sam Larson, you'll hear from him in just a little while, and a good group of our church family are stepping out by faith to plant a church in Hickman, Nebraska. And I thought about the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the people in Rome wanting their support as he made his way to Spain. And in Paul's letter to the Romans, 
wanting their support for his mission to Spain. He didn't go on and on about himself or his ministry strategy or the need of the people in Spain, which is all fine, and we'll get to that. The main thing he wrote and filled all the pages of the book of Romans with is a reminder of the gospel, that the very same gospel, the very same good news that God used to save the people in Rome is the same message he preaches, Paul, and the same message he's taking with him to Spain. And rather than keep you long enough to preach the entire book of Romans to you this morning, I figured I'd direct your attention to Titus chapter 3. It's a wonderful summation of the gospel. And I'm just going to do this morning what Paul commands Titus to do. Paul commanded Titus chapter 3 verse 1, remind them. Remind them. And I'm, so I'm just going to take that mantle on myself and remind you and ask you not to be bored or put off by being reminded of things you know well. But instead to find in it not only camaraderie in the grace of God, but also as God has commanded Titus to remind the people on Crete, the believers on Crete, of things they know well here that maybe God knows that for you and I gathered this morning, what you need is not a fresh new word, but a reminder of powerful truths that quickly get dumped over by all the other stuff that rises to our concern. So maybe a familiar word can hit us again with new life through reminder. This text, the text that Troy read for us, he started in verse 3. I'm just going to, for the sake of continuity, start in verse 1. If you go from verse 1 to verse 11, this ver these verses are like a sandwich. The, the beginning and the end section are visible to other people. It's like the bread in a sandwich. The good works, it's the good deeds, it's the don't do this, make sure you do that. Verses one through three, and then second half of verse eight through verse 11. It's the life we live. We sang, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. And the, the how and what, that's, what that looks like, how that's colored, are the, are the bookends, or the bread in the sandwich of Titus chapter three. Now, you and I know that, like the Lord Jesus said, if we being evil know how to give good gifts, evil people still know how to do good things sometimes. So what makes the good that believers are called to do radically different than the good that unbelievers do? And that's not any kind of puff on us. What makes a sandwich one kind of sandwich or another kind of sandwich? It's not so much the bread, it's the meat in the middle. 
Do you like bologna sandwiches? We'll talk later. <laughs> I like steak and cheese. <laughs> See what I'm saying? And in a good steak and cheese, the meat in the middle finds its way seeping into the bread that surrounds it. That's the logic of this passage. Read with me verse 1. The bread. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is a way Paul wants the believers on Crete to live and to do so towards all people, not only fellow believers, but their fellow Cretans who are unbelievers. You remember, if you're familiar with the book of Titus, the way Paul quotes a prophet of their own and how the Cretans describe themselves, liars, lazy gluttons, evil beasts. That's how they describe themselves. And in the midst of a, an island full of people who are described this way, not only by outsiders, but by themselves, we're happy about this. We're liars, and we're pretty good at it. We're lazy. We can sit around all day and tell you what you should be doing. We're gluttons. We love our food. I will stop right there. And we're evil beasts. In the midst of a people like that, what can make them into people who are submissive to rulers and authorities? Obedience ready for every good work. People who speak evil of no one. They don't put people down. They don't show off how witty they are. They don't slander people. They don't make fun of them. They, they avoid quarreling. They don't get their hackles raised up. They don't bite back. When somebody comes against them, they don't trade insults, they're gentle. They show perfect courtesy. That's an amazing phrase. That's a phrase the Lord Jesus used when he described himself as gentle and lowly or meek in heart. Perfect courtesy. And they don't discriminate. They don't say to themselves, well, that's for me and my friends, or me and my family, or me and people who treat me well. They do this to all people. People they're friends with, people who agree with them, and people who don't. People who come at them as liars, evil beasts, they show Perfect courtesy to 
all peoples. The phrase literally in the original language is every person or all peoples or persons. It's got this individual quality to it. You, not you. You, not you. No, no matter who, this is what we're going to do. And then if you skip down to like the, the second part of verse 8, well, just verse 8, just because you won't know what the second part is. So verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who, may be, those who have believed in God, here it is, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Just the way he ended verse 1. Ready for every good work. Complete opposite of chapter 1, verse 16, where the false teachers were unfit for any good work. But like he said at the end of chapter 2, verse 14, the cross makes a people who are actually chomping at the bits for good work, zealous for every good work. So if we were to keep reading, and I just want to encourage you in this direction after your time at church today when you're waking up from your nap this afternoon or whatever you do, just kind of come back to Titus 3 and chew on this meat. How the gospel transforms Cretans into new creations. And the reminder that they need and we need. What makes this sandwich not just bologna kind of good works, but meaty kind of good works, steak and cheese, is a gospel in the middle. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is an amazing verse. And I would encourage you to come back and meditate. Put this in your mind like a cough drop in your mouth and just suck on it all day long. This is a powerful, terrifying, terrible verse. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, that's, we know what's good to do and we don't do it. We know that this choice is going to have some pretty bad consequences, but who cares? Foolish and disobedient. Disobedient to God, disobedient to authorities. Look at verse 1. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. These are secular, sorry, these are godless rulers and authorities over the Roman providence. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. We thought, hey, I know exactly where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. Stop telling me what to do. I know what I'm doing. Not realizing that we're being led astray. We're being led. Notice the passive, magnetic draw. That sounds awesome. I'm being led astray. Slaves to various passions. I'm just doing what I want to do. 
ultimate freedom is I get to choose my own way. I get to tell myself what to do. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. Not realizing that it's slavery, slavery to various passions and pleasures. Not that passions and pleasures are necessarily sinful. God makes the pleasures. But the enemy has warped and twisted them, and sinners use them in idolatrous ways, in ways God didn't intend. And so therefore, what do, what do the people on Crete do with their time? Look at passing our days in malice and envy. Thinking bad about people, simmering with anger at people, lashing back, envy, wishing what they had I had, wishing they didn't have it. I want that family. I want that house. I want that car. I want that freedom. Malice, envy. And then Paul concludes, hated by others. I thought everybody liked me. And hating one another. I thought I was keeping that secret. The, the way that's worded in the original language, hating one another and hated by others, the way that's worded carries the idea with it that not, carries with the idea that the people Paul's talking about are not lovable, they're hateable. Hating one another and being hated by others. I don't know if you know anything about the five love languages. It was a thing that Christian psychologists were helping us understand some years ago. I was talking to my biblical counselor, and I realized that I've got a hate language. I don't, do you know if you have a hate language? My hate language is silence. I shut down on you when I'm mad at you for a while. And then my hate language is a roaring lion. Do you have a hate language? Here's a problem with a text like this. We insulate ourselves from its impact. I don't hate them, Pastor Dean. I just don't like them. I don't hate them. I'd just rather not be around them. And because we change the words, I don't hate them. Because we, we dodge the intention of passages like this. Not that bad. It's not like that. And we don't allow Scripture to shine its searchlight on our hearts and expose the rotting sin. Because we duck and dodge the language of Scripture. It's not malice. I don't envy them. We just kind of rewrite it and make it a little bit more swallowable. You know what really caused me to stay up 
late into the night earlier this week pondering this passage is in the ESV, I don't know how it's translated in your Bible in your lap, the, the, the word at the beginning of verse 3, ourselves, for we ourselves were once this, ourselves. Or in some of your translations, we also were once. Do you know what that means? Do you remember who's writing this letter? This isn't a fellow Cretan writing this letter. We also were foolish, lazy, evil, liars, gluttons. Like This is Paul who was raised right in the Jewish ways and surpassed all his companions in his zealousness for God's word. Read Philippians chapter 2, chapter 3. This is Paul who was raised right and really worked hard at pleasing God in all the right religious ways. This was a guy raised in church synagogue set under the best rabbi schools. He went to the best seminary. And like Paul, same writer, Romans 17, thought he was rocking it with God's word until the last commandment, the one about do not covet, the one that kind of looked in at the heart, until the do not covet word slayed him. How is it that goody-two-shoes Paul can say right along with the Cretans, we ourselves were once just like them in every way that really matters? They flavored their sin with different flavors. They colored it with different hues. But the same lines of sin that was in them was in me. We ourselves were once jacked up. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Slaves, hating and being hated. The diagnosis is not awesome, but the remedy rocks. Look at verse 4. A change comes in out of nowhere. And just like Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, some of the best words in Scripture, Paul does it again, same author, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He rescued us. It's verse 4 that made me rethink my view of the weak word kindness. We think in, re in order to make change in society, 
kindness has to go. But it is the goodness, not the cunningness, but the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior that made all the difference. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We had none. We were foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in nothing but malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We had no righteousness. So it wasn't according to anything in us. It was according to what is in God. Verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't turn over new leaf. We didn't promise to do better next time. It wasn't us. It was God. But according to his own mercy. Notice how Paul piles up the words to describe God. His goodness, his loving kindness. His mercy. Words that break the sinful, stony heart. He washed us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, let me answer questions before they get raised, right? So, in this verse... Some people understand the washing of regeneration to mean like when you get baptized, baptism saves you. Let me give you one at least key reason why I don't think that's what it means. And I could list a hundred more. One key reason is that This whole section is not talking about what people do, but what God does. He saved us by by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an outward sign of what the Holy Spirit has done on the inside. He regenerates. He washes. He renews. And as necessary as baptism is, we are commanded to baptize those who come to faith in Christ Jesus. It is what God has done that is being highlighted in verse 5. He saved us. He regenerates. He washes. He renews. In verse 4, The goodness and loving kindness of God was put on display. It appeared. It manifested. The word is where we get epiphany from. It's the arrival of Jesus Christ. It's Christmas. His life, his death, his resurrection. So God the Father sends God the Son, and he appears on the scene and does a saving work, living the life we should have lived, dying the death that we deserve to die, 
and rising triumphantly over sin and death. And then when this news is carried to unbelievers and the Holy Spirit is at work, God, the Holy Spirit is active. He, verse 6, is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. God the Father initiates. God the Son lives and gives his life. God the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly, not Stingily, not with some reserve. As much of the Holy Spirit as the Lord Jesus deserves is as much of the Holy Spirit that you get. And if we head back to verse 5 for just a minute, let's just underline what God does. He regenerates and renews. That's awesome. So many of us want to start over again. This is the idea that's echoed over and over in Scripture when Jesus talks about you must be born again. This is so much more than promising to be good next time. This is men made new from the inside out. The heart of stone is traded out for a heart that actually lives and beats. Regeneration and renewal, an idea echoed all over the New Testament. And what's funny, though, is in the original language, this word for regeneration, renewal, is used only one other time in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus uses it when he speaks in the book of Matthew of a coming new world. In the new world, you will get this and that and the other. To Genesis, again, regeneration. To Genesis, again, in the palingenesia, in the new start, the new beginning, the new world, Revelation 22. And I saw a new heavens and a new earth. The only other time this word is used for renewal, regeneration, is used by the Lord Jesus when he speaks of a new world to come. And here in our passage, we find that God being rich in mercy, according to his goodness and loving kindness, pours out his Holy Spirit and regenerates people, renews people, so that people who were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, are men and women made new. New people being made for a new world to come. 
if you feel like you don't belong here anymore, there's a reason for that. If some part of you finds that in all the little nursery rhymes and fairy stories that you've ever been told about a prince who would come and rescue and love and you'd be hauled off to a new life in a new castle away from the wicked step-parents, like, if that resonates with you on some level, I wish it was true. There's a reason for that. There's a reason we prefer fantasy stories to the hellscape we live in. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in me a desire for a desire for something that I cannot find in this world, it must mean that I was made for another world. And that has to be the case. If, if God is making all things new, what a thing he does by starting with us. Can you imagine, okay, we're going to hit reset. Adam and Eve kind of jacked it up, kind of messed things up for everybody. Let's blame the parents, you know, that's what everybody's doing these days. Blame them. Let's restart. We're going to make a brand new awesome world, and I'm going to take you to it. How about we fill the world with people who are still foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures and people who pass their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another? how quickly would we jack up the new world? God is awesome. He does not leave a world wrecked. He's got designs for it. He does not leave foolish, wicked sinners in their own foolishness. He regenerates and renews. He is awesome. He's making a new world and making people new who will populate it. And, and when you heard of God's goodness and the coming of Christ Jesus to bear your sins, and you came to realize, oh, the Bible is true, the gospel is true, and Jesus saves, and you put your faith in him, you too were experiencing being made new. Paul describes it in big words to arrest your attention. You experience it in, Lord, save me. Or the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or Paul, Romans 10. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. That's it? I don't have to make myself new? No. He regenerates and he renews. He continues this process of renewal. So when you summarize this gospel meet in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace. Now, if you have ever 
doubted your salvation like me. I am someone who knows what it's like to live years in doubting whether I'm actually saved or playing church. Because I've rightly heard justification is by faith alone, and that is right, and don't ever get it wrong. And it leads me to wonder, do I believe enough? At the core of being made right with God, justification. It's not mainly what I do, how much faith I have. It's mainly who God is, the God of grace, being justified by his grace. I get the opposite of what I deserve. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The foolish, the disobedient, the led astray, the easily led astray, the slaves, not just the tyrants, but my own passions and pleasures, those who find joy in passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, come to trust in Jesus Christ and are made heirs. They don't earn it, obviously. They are granted it. The title of everything that is coming to the Lord Jesus, being united to him, is yours to share. You are heirs. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life, a new world quality of life that is so much better than what was before. And hope, according to the hope of eternal life. God made a promise of eternal life. And we've taken him up on that deal. I love the fact that in the New Testament, especially in Paul, especially in this letter to pastors, Timothy, Titus. When Paul uses the word hope, he's not talking about wish. You know the difference between wish and hope? So I hate dark spaces, and I hate tight spaces. Like if the lights went out on an elevator, somebody would be wetting his pants. I'm sorry, I said that in church, my bad. So if you're stuck in a dark elevator and you find the doors and you start to pull and tug and you're just like, I wish I was strong enough like the Hulk to pull these doors open. I wish. That's not hope in the New Testament. If you're meandering through a dark cave and you find that you're lost and you wish that you would find the exit, that's not New Testament hope. New Testament hope is 
turning a corner and realizing, am I playing tricks on me? Because it feels like, it seems like there's a little pinprick of light ahead. And all of a sudden, the droopy back and the weak knees that were wishing that the cave system would end now have new vigor and start moving a little faster and picking up speed and clambering over the lag type. Like, I forget which one is which. They're like climbing all over stuff because as you keep moving forward with new energy, the light is getting brighter and bigger. You don't wish you were out of the cave. You see the cave ending ahead. God has promised eternal life. And how do you know he's going to come through on his promise? Well, most centrally, I can point you to the cross and what he has purchased, he will deliver on. But in this passage, I love this room. I love worshiping in this room because when, when you sing songs in this room, I, I sat right there, and when I sang songs in this room, I could see, not all of you, I wish I could, I could see some of you. And I thought about this passage. Because a key sign that God is fulfilling his promise of the hope of eternal life the fact that there are other people in the room who are men and women made new. They still need reminders, like verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, remind them to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, no matter who the presidential candidate is, to avoid, sorry, did I say, my bad, my bad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, like, brain, Okay, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, no matter who they are or how much they're jacking up our country. I'm sorry, I'll stop. You and I still need reminders. But when being reminded of who we are to be in Christ and why, the meat in the middle, because we too were once just as jacked up and foolish and enslaved to various passions like them. It just took on a different hue. But when the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because we rock in righteousness, but because of his own grace. So that being justified by his grace, we become heirs of the hope of eternal life. No wonder Paul bleeds into verse 8 and says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful. We are new people heading for a new world. Be careful to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent and profitable for people, not just for you, but for the people you interact with. I wonder what unbelievers think of Christians that they see in popular media. 
And I guess, in reality, I can't do anything about that. But I can do a lot about what unbelievers think of Christians when they interact with me. Imagine if you and I clung to what Scripture says is most important, this gospel meat of God's grace, and let it influence how we interact with all people, believers and unbelievers. Imagine how much different South Lincoln would be. Imagine how different Hickman would be. Imagine a world where people who are made new by God's grace took the reminder to heart. Would you stand and let me pray for you? Father, thank you so much for your mercy to us. And we pray that in your goodness to us, we would live a life that is pleasing to you. Thank you for Faith Bible. Thank you for the decades standing on the gospel. And we pray that as we move forward together by grace, we'd be filled with your spirit, cherishing of your word, and living a life that is pleasing to you. Thank you for loving us when we were unlovable and for saving us when there was no way. Thank you for all these things in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.